Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Duanna. I like forgot my own name. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Show Your Work, the final episode of 2018. Apparently I need a holiday, but yes, we are here for one awesome last episode. A lot of you will be listening to this during your holidays. Um, Maybe you need a break from the turkey and the family, or maybe you need some holiday suggestions, and that's where I'm coming in today. Oh, I mean, I love that, but yeah, I think that podcasts have given us so many gifts, but one of the best ones is that you can sit on the couch and like ignore your belligerent uncle, uh, and nobody knows that you're in your own world. I'm delighted. So, um... One of the things that is a tradition for me during the holidays is something I do with you, Duanna, is at least once we have a board game night. At least once, At least once. And we are, like, we're obsessed with games because both of us are competitive and we love that kind of fucking trivial pursuit shit Oh, is this going where I think it's going? Okay. No, no, no. No, no. It's it's actually not going where you think it's going, but it's sort of going there. So, yeah, you're not going to like what I'm about to say because you're a contrarian, but… I'm going to talk about how you being contrarian is not your superpower when it comes to board games, especially this one board game. But before I do that, I've just discovered a game that was introduced to me by my colleague, Melissa Grello, that I just introduced to you an hour ago that you're obsessed with. It's called Heads Up. It's an app that you can get. Ellen DeGeneres invented it. It's super fun. Everybody check it out. I I love this. I am so excited. And I should point out that when I walked in, you said, this is how you introduced it to me. You said, okay, okay, okay. Just, I just want to do that. I'm not going to explain it to you. You'll pick it up. Okay, okay, okay. Go. Yeah. Like you gave me no words, no, no preamble. anything. And then yeah. I was looking at you with a phone on your forehead. Yes. It's so fun. Anyway, one of the games that we last played when all of us got together, it's another couple and there's six of us and we played Men Against Women was a game that um, I also discovered through my friend Melissa Grello and it's called Codenames. Yes. Codenames is great. Uh, the idea being that there's, uh, you have pieces of information on the board and you have to tell people other words to make them. Yeah. Uh, you guys can look it up, whatever. I mean, look up the code names. You can play it. It's essentially a game about words. So where are we getting to the point where you're going to okay. like, okay, go on. So to our great misfortune, the women lost. And we lost two people we consider fucking idiots. <laughs> I mean, we're married to them, but so that's neither here nor there. But like, yeah, there's there's some people who are word people. And, and this is not, we should say, this is not a gender thing. This just happens to be these particular women and these particular men. Joanna, we write for a living. I know. And we use words for a living. Words are our living. And we lost two uh, three fucking idiots. I'm including my husband, your husband, and Lorella's husband because, you know, I don't think she would mind. Right. But this is, I just want to be clear. I'm not talking about all men are idiots in this game. No. These three particular men are fools. <laughs> and we have de- uh, several layers yes. of board games to prove it. And the three of us lost. 
which is part of the strategy of the game is to understand your partner and her or his way of thinking to get them to come to the words that you are trying to get them to choose. I, th- I do think you have to explain a little more here. So I'm trying to get you to pick up a card that says, say, carrot, but I can't tell you that carrot is one of our cards. So I have to think of what is going to make you say that. So right. I say- uh, Vegetable. Well, I would say an insult in Anne of Green Gables, maybe. No, um, you wouldn't because you can only use one word to get me to pick the one word. Okay, it's been a long time, okay? Yeah. You're playing code names but without me, with other people. You're cheating, I'm just so saying, I'm out of practice. But I'm just saying that that was your problem. <laughs> what is my problem? <laughs> your problem is that you are such a creative. And code names is a really linear game. Like, you have to take the person in the most direct route to link the words together. Understanding how the person works. And the thing with you is that you are so unpredictable because you are creative and you're like, oh, but I can connect this and I can develop a side storyline and, you know, this um, in a, an obscure world, I saw a movie that was this word meant this, that it's so hard to give you a clue and for you to get you to pick the clue. Because I am awesome at this game. I know I'm awesome at this game because, yes, I have cheated and played with other people and I rock it. But, wait, but when but I wait. play with you, you like I'm like Jesus Christ. Why isn't she coming up with the fucking word? And I, now I've realized it's because you are not a linear thinker. You are a creative, like all systems go thinker. Okay, so I just want to point out here that I thought we were doing the podcast, but apparently <laughs> it's like my grade seven report card is what's happening here. Like we're just I told you a- wouldn't like it, but I don't understand how this is a preamble that we're just broing down about. Uh, my brain as it relates to board games. But do you have an example? Because I think this is just hearsay. I think there is no, unless you have a specific clue where you said, I said red and you didn't pick up blue. I'm, I think this is just so much, uh, uh, you know. I think what I, here's the word. The word that I was trying to get you to say was bleachers. Right. And I put out the word Um, and remember, like you guys figure out the game, like this is not going to be a podcast where we tell you how code names works. It's just when you play it, you'll get it anyway. So there are like so many other words on the board that I can't be so general that if I give her one word, it can apply to six other words that belong to the other team. So it has to be specific, but also universal. (laughs) Ha ha. There's our linking but also get you to the point where you pick the word that isn't the other word that belongs to the other team, but our word. Right. And your point and the reason the game is fun is because the word that you use to get me to that card is a different word than you might use to get somebody else there because somebody else might choose something different. Right. So I think what we're finding here without even knowing what it was that you, which clue you gave me, I think maybe it's actually that it's your problem because you don't know me well enough to say the right code word. No. Yeah. It was because yeah. I, like, I would gave you the most obvious thing and all of a sudden you were like, oh, well, like, you know, it could be that uh, I once saw a thing and they talked about this. And I, in my mind, I was like, what the fuck is she doing? This is all anyway, maddeningly vague, guys. None of you would choose bleachers either. What was your clue? You don't remember. It was football. 
It was not. Yes, it was football. And then you went on a thing about like, I don't know, Friday Night Lights and uh, uh, I don't like. Well, because you're also choosing from like, I'm sure there was a card that said like leadership and a card. No, that said there was bleachers. Texas. Football, bleachers. Yeah, but it wasn't just bleachers. Anyway, anyway. the next time we play, Duanna, this, this, one of the common themes of show your work has been go outside your thinking zone. <laughs> no, that's been one of your themes. Be linear. I think I'm always beating the drum that says embrace your nerd. So uh, I will meet you halfway. Okay. Uh, I also think we need to plan for the current situation uh, is in somewhat flux of when exactly game night is being deployed and how. But I think for you know, real proper achievement, we need to plan for like at least four games. Uh, I think the last time we had a hardcore games night, we didn't shut it down till close to 4 a.m. Yeah. Um, and that was as well, pure. The fucking idiots we played with played one round and then decided it was enough because they wanted to end the night on a win. And it was like 1130. Fuck them. Oh, yeah. That was the night that we were outside with mosquitoes and, and yeah. no light. And we were like, but let's take it inside. And they were like, we want to go to bed because they wanted to like. They wanted to go out on a high. That's so right. Don't play with pouty babies um, who don't want to. Do you remember? And you were like, come on. <laughs> I think you were stealing keys at that point. You were like trying to confiscate keys so nobody would go. I mean, look, it's a very specific thing to play board games with people <laughs> who are going to play hard and not get distracted by like phones and whatever. And for whom, and this is the most important part, if you would like to have uh, a board game night as part of your traditions, your holiday traditions, your friend traditions, what you need to do is find people, not who are smart, not who love to play, whatever. You need to find people who can trash talk because yes. that is the key to a successful <laughs> evening. Correct. <laughs> and also, you might need to have a Yasek somewhere in, in the mix because… Uh, He's disruptive. And also possibly sometimes not all the way there. And no. that really is useful for the mechanism of the board game. Yes. Like, he is both disruptive and foolish um, and it… It makes for really great, like, it, and it makes for really great moments. Um, so tell us what you're going to play over the holidays. Uh, obviously, Codenames is on the list. The trivia game uh, that you just mentioned that you just taught me in the kitchen. Heads up. Is on the list. And I am actually going to make a real effort to find True Colors, which is a whole other story, but it is a board game about how well you know your friends and they don't necessarily like it. Uh, so I think it's kind of out of print. Buy some. That's now going to be my mission to get one on Etsy before we all convene. Okay. Would you play a board game with Michelle Obama? Definitely. Would Would you be embarrassed that maybe you might not be as good? She might be savage. She would be one of those people who would be spectacular at Scrabble. And you'd be like, wow, I'm a Luddite who's never read in my life. I just want to be in her presence. I mean, it's not like I wasn't obsessed with Michelle Obama before Becoming, but now that I've read Becoming… I, yeah, she is, um, well, let's get into it. Well, I just want to talk about the oral history of reading Becoming, uh, is that you gave me a copy very generously before I went on my trip. I tore through it when I was on my trip. And then my father was like, Duan, what is this? Let me see. Can I read? <laughs> so he was reading it for most of the week because I had already finished it. And he was stopped so many times on the beach, by the pool. How is it? Do you like it? To which you respond, my daughter read so fast, I am just beginning. 
Um, but everybody who passed by us, whom we passed by, wanted to know how this book was. I hope and love that it's on a million Christmas lists, and I'm very excited to see it being opened on Christmas morning and devoured. It came out in November. It's already the best-selling book of the year. I mean, you guys. I mean, it happened in a week. So, um, yeah, it is worth your read. As I said last week, as we said last week, this is a work book. It is a book about work. There is so much fucking work in this book. There's a ton of work in this book, but, you know, if if you think I need to be more linear and I think you need to pay more attention to the wonders of your friends, I think Michelle Obama gave herself a line to follow, a piece of work for this book, and that was to be honest. I expected a lot of things, but I didn't know that I was going to find this book so honest throughout. And mm-hmm. it was, to me, I think the most important thing that I relished. Me too. I think that one of the, like, I'm glad we're starting there because I think what she set out to do, maybe, if I were to guess, was to demystify herself. Which she, is- as the first lady, and especially in the two years since she's been first lady, you know, there's a joke that goes around, like, mom and dad, we miss mom and dad. Um, and the Obamas have been looked at, especially with the perspective of hindsight, I guess. Yeah, of as, course. As this golden couple, this utopian ideal. That's right. Of what the presidency was and what the first ladyship was. And that's, that's right. something that she discusses a whole lot. That that's right. How do you do a good job at something for which there is no job, no description, no anything? And that's not to say she's not still Michelle Obama. And certainly with the writing of this book, which is very literary. I mean, she is an excellent writer. I dare say she's a better writer, in my opinion, than Barack Obama. Ooh, yes. that's, a, that's a real statement. She's definitely a different writer. And much more colloquial and accessible in the way that she writes, for sure. Well, she's literary and accessible. He's very literary, but as she says, and she, you know, makes like so many asides about him, he's so brilliant and his mind is so elevated. And she says all the time that his answers can be long-winded and verbose is one of the words she used to describe him, that it's sometimes his writing veers into the esoteric, which is not accessible. Um, And so, yes, Michelle Obama through this book has certainly added to her reputation. And yet I do think, to go back to the original point, what you're saying is one of the intentions of this book was to demystify herself. You know, to say, I understand how people feel about me. I, I held my position. I did the best job that I could. But I'm not like immortal. I'm not an avenger. Right. And she didn't spring fully formed into being. Yeah. Um, So if uh, you have been hesitating about buying the book or whatnot, sometimes you're not sure whether a book is going to be all confessional or kind of how-to or if it's one of those like weird hybrids that's actually a, you know, there are people who write disguised sort of platforms or political ideas disguised in, um, you know, in a memoir or whatever. This is a straight up biography. Um, and it does say memoir, but I use the word biography or autobiography because it is front to back exhaustive. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people who like come to prominence 
in their 40s, as she did, sort of real, really skate by uh, the youth years or the high school years or whatnot. And you find often that the people who spend more time there are people who are younger, right? Yeah. Like if you read a, a some 30-year-old's book of essays, they spend more time in the younger stuff because that's closer. Yeah. But I really appreciated that she spent a lot of time in her youth, in her home that she grew up in. Yeah. Um, like I think on page 100, she's still 10. Yeah. Um, it's real deep. I actually, I mean, of course I love the details about the election and campaigning and what it was like to get into the White House, but I preferred that first half of the book. Um, I preferred the, I preferred the descriptions, um, her memories of her mother and her father, the, the, like the beginning of the becoming. I really, and some people don't, like there are some people I've talked to who said that, you know, I, I found the first hundred pages a struggle. I actually found the first hundred pages delicious. Oh, absolutely. Um, um, and again, this is not the My Dad podcast, but he's real strict about what he reads mm-hmm. and has a real uh, nonfiction bent and wants to be learning something. And he found it delicious. Yes. Uh, and that's not like him. And so, you know, take yeah. that for what it's worth. It's one anecdote. but. Yeah. Uh, I think that speaks to how her accessibility, as you talk about it, can cross over into appealing to all kinds of people. And again, part of that accessibility is the demystification, the the self-demystification. I mean, the Obamas have in many circles been mythologized. um, And I mean, come on, like we all have a little bit of, you know, once a week or once every two months, I sort of like to make myself feel better by like Googling pictures of them. Or, you know, there's, there were all kinds of memes going around right before Obama left office. Um, like 25 times Obama was great with babies. You know, those pictures, they're amazing. But yeah, you know, I think part of it was, yes, she was dismantling the mythology. And part of that, as you said, was sheer honesty and matter of factness. So Here's like a quick list that we don't have to dwell on, but is part of that demystification, this unmythologizing is, uh, yeah, she uh, parked with guys in cars and made out. Obviously. Obviously, right? But, I mean, she was a first lady. She sure. smoked pot. Yep. That, that detail is just dropped in and left and whatever. I smoked some pot. Because, you know, it's, they have this thing about them, both of them, which is why they're such a pair, where they're sort of incapable of not being human. Um, and so they're incapable of turning off their humanity. And you realize that maybe other politicians or people in prominence that you've seen didn't have it to begin with. Yeah. Um, the parts I really love, uh, in in keeping with that, they're just dropped in, and gone, are things like where she talks about when she was 10. She didn't have that many friends because she didn't go outside. She didn't mix with kids that well. She yeah. wasn't good at it. Or the part where she talks about maybe at Princeton, she's like, you know what? I had my one group and I didn't go outside it. And I probably should have. And I didn't take advantage of everything that was there, but I didn't do it. Love that. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the part where she's like, let me tell you all the times I've been pissed at my husband. Yeah. (laughs) Because those are Oh, I mean, when we talk about like demystifying and breaking down the mythology, there's a lot of that in there about them as the perfect couple. But- you know, just to continue quickly with finishing up the list, when we're talking about her husband, multiple times at every level of where he was climbing the political ladder, she says, I just didn't think he would win. 
So I said, yes, go and run for senator of this and whatever of that. But like, honestly, I didn't think he could do it. <laughs> like, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, she it's point blank in black and white in like a sentence. I didn't think he would win. Quote. And, and it goes all the way up. Late in the book, there's a story about this kind of historic event that happened uh, that maybe we'll talk about in a different context, but she's like, it's one of those things like, God, I'm the first lady. I have access to this amazing thing. I'm going to go and check it out. And she goes to Sasha's room and is like, do you want to come with me and see this? And Sasha, she said, Sasha didn't even look up from her iPad and was like, nah, like (laughs) that's honest. Like you can be Michelle Obama and everybody loves you and your mom and dad and your 15 year old still can't deal with you at all. Well, that's what, that's why you and I every year love the fucking turkey pardoning because those two girls were like trotted out with the turkeys and they had to stand there listening to their dad make really lame jokes about the pardoning of the turkey. And they were like, this is so fucking lame. We are 14 and 17. And of course, why would we think this is cool? I did a little satisfied shiver when I got to the part in the book where the turkey pardoning comes up because <laughs> I, I was just like, you know, and you're just like, are they going to do it? They did it. Yeah. So it's a, it's really good. So we knew, I guess, that, or you hope because she's an engaging person, that the book will be an engaging read. So that feels like you feel confident and in good hands as soon as you start reading. Well, yes. And the thing is, is that because we are talking about how much work is in this book and how much work she put into writing it, it is a delicate balance to have a goal. I mean, I'm assigning this as her goal. I don't know for sure if this is her goal. To demystify oneself, to sort of break down the mythology, and yet to maintain a legacy. That is a tricky balance because he was a two-term president. She was a two-term first lady. There is a legacy that was left behind. There's a legacy that 100% she would want to stand that she left behind. So the dual task of honoring the legacy that she helped build and also demystifying the mythology around her um, is not easy. It's hard work and she fucking nails it. Well, here is what I think has always been so interesting about the Obamas, right? Like, so they're intrinsically, like the Q factor is through the roof. People love them. They're relatable. They're funny. All those things, right? But they have that other thing which you need, which is they have this understanding of uh, American politics and policy and, uh, you know, selfless work for people. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I think that maybe people prefer either the first half or the second half of the book is because she's very conscious that those memories and that legacy that you talk about don't just belong to them. Yes. Right. As soon as they become public figures in an office that is to serve, yeah. And again, really, only he does because she's not. It's not like she. It's not a position, first mm-hmm. lady, and it's not a salary. But as soon as she and he get there, then she's more circumspect because those memories and those experiences belong to everyone, to everybody in America and the world. Yeah. Um, and she's just peeking back little windows into what was happening at the time uh, without owning it in the same way, which I think that's the delicate balance that I think is arguably the hardest. So to go back to the beginning, she spends a lot of time at the beginning because we have to understand where this thing that she talks about, like how she um, set up a line for herself that she followed and 
she missed out on the art of swerving until she realized what a gift it was to be able to swerve. Those are her words. So align meaning, meaning align meaning like a life trajectory. That's right. She had a path and a plan, and it was yeah, yeah. There was no room for diverting. And of course, the origin of this is. What many people um, understand, especially kids of immigrants, you and I have that in common, and kids of, of working class parents, is that her parents never imagined what a swerve would be. Um, her dad worked the same job and never missed a day at work. Um, and her mother once said to her when she was considering a change of career, money first, happiness later. Well, and because... It's because uh, a lot of immigrant families, their swerve, if you will, is a, it's a dual generation swerve. The parents work like crazy and prioritize work and achievement above all else so that their children can swerve or swing up, if you prefer, to an echelon of life that was not available to their parents, to their grandparents. That's, That's right. the goal. It's it's just, it's meant to be like a two-act play, yes. right? We work hard so you can achieve. Yes. And so her part of it, you can achieve, is necessarily a straight line because they have swung her up like fucking Donkey Kong to another level that now she needs to walk along on. Yeah. And you really have to, this is the anchor. You really have to understand this from the beginning of the book to really be able to appreciate where her decisions come from, where her perspective comes from, um, and um, how it fits and sometimes clashes with the person she chose to share a life with. Because what happened, and maybe one of the reasons that this book is such a delicious read, is it's nonfiction, of course, it's an autobiography, but she starts planting the idea of this line or this swerve really mm-hmm. uh, really early in the book before yeah. you even know what she's talking about. She's talking about, well, I was on the path, this and that were all steps on the path. And you're sort of going, great, good for you, without knowing what was going to become kind of the central thesis of the book. Were you surprised when you, when you realized what that was? Actually, you know, I don't think I was surprised because as a good writer, she, as I said, laid the groundwork. Mm-hmm. Um, what I, I guess a better, oh, a better word would be I was appreciative. I just really appreciated the care she took with the reader in her story. It was satisfying. How about that? Yeah. Because she talks about all these things and all these, like, let's be honest, all these achievements. Like, yeah, she was talking about being a real teenager for sure. But she was also talking about how it was all happening under the auspices of do well, achieve well. Um, And you can see hints early on that maybe that's too straightforward a mindset. You know, she tells a story about a kid. uh, She tells a story about being a kid and having a trouble achieving something in her classroom. And it could just be uh, like a funny anecdote about her. Oh, I wanted to get it right and I worked so hard and then even though I couldn't get it right. Had it been three paragraphs shorter, it would have been a funny anecdote. But what it does is it lays in, even at six and seven, that she was devoted to the path, to the line, almost to not her own detriment, but maybe to her own narrowness. 
And I just don't think we have a lot of people who are that, you know, you said revealing of herself. And I also think willing to be vulnerable. Yes, I think willing to be vulnerable, but it goes back to me to the work of demystifying certain elements about this, um, this, I don't know, halo that's been created around her. Um, and one of those ways to do that is to be like, nothing comes easy for me. And this is what she repeats over and over again. She's like, I was good at school, but I was never the best. Right. What I did was I kept working at it. Mm-hmm. And this really pays off when she meets Barack Obama. And this is someone who is like a one-of-a-kind mind, right? When he shows up, she said his reputation preceded him. That's that right. Everybody had been talking about this wonderkind yes. out of, I think, out of Colombia. Um, yes. And that everybody was gagging over him when he was basically, like, as far as I understand, a second-year articling student is basically, uh, they're basically an infant. Like, they're not out of diapers yeah. in lawyer terms. And everybody was already so excited about it. Yeah, there's this one passage where she said that a brief that he had written, and again, he was like an intern at the time, was going around the firm and all these lawyers, much more experienced and older, were like, oh my God, you got to read this brief that this kid wrote. Um, so, so what happens here is that she's setting the groundwork for when he comes into her life and he is, as you say, this wonderkind, and he seems to be able to do things so easily. Mm-hmm. And what we have here is a juxtaposition. Michelle Obama is not that. What is sexy, at least to me, is that she says, I'm not that. I'm the person who tries. She's Anne Hathaway, which is sacrilegious for me, I know, and people are going to turn off this podcast and please don't do it. What I'm trying to say is that last episode... We try to extol the virtues of putting in effort, effort that you can see. Because for far too long, you know, it was told to you that the, the most attractive quality is someone who is just great at something and they breeze through it. That is not what Michelle Obama is. She tries. She's a trier. Right. And she puts in effort and she has to sweat. And that is through the entire book, not just when she was young. Um, and it may be, to me, the most telling part of that, which uh, is maybe what you are getting to, is that she confesses that she didn't pass the bar the first time she took it, that she, as many, many lawyers do, had to take it again. And lots of lawyers in her firm are like, yeah, yeah, me too, no big deal. But she's not, like, he is the genius. He is the Harry Potter. He is the, the one in a generation. And she's Hermione. And she's that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. She is the worker. Yeah. But the glory of it is the reason that it all works is they need each other. And yes. Needed each other. That's right. I mean, I think maybe that's why they work because he is that one in a generation mind, and she is telling us, "I am not a one in a generation mind, but what I am is, in my own right, a contributor by working hard." Right. And to, you know, to extend that, because he's not just a one in a generation mind, but the same mind in that chill, laid back body. And he never raises his voice and he thinks he's really cool. Um, And she's none of those things, but she's going like, I think part of it too, is you don't have to be that person 
to be yeah on this stage. You don't have to be that wonderkind. Like there's only one yeah. of him and there are a whole bunch of other people who get there through much more pedestrian ways and That's means. That's right. And I appreciated that too, the honesty in that kind of self-reflection. But in doing so, she made me, in a good way, annoyed with him. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, and without making you hate him, like, you're not like, fuck this guy. But you're like, well, good for you, easy breezy. Like, the rest of us have to try. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's a sequence where, um, and I might be getting it wrong, but I think Shortly after they get married, uh, he's like, "Well, I gotta go write this book. Um, I, I want to show you. I want to show you my notes yes. for this because I just wrote. I when he left to write the book, exclamation point yes. is what I want to discuss. Yes, because it's just. Am I right? Was it after their wedding? Yes, so, they were newlyweds. Yeah, and um, she she was like, we just got married. It was so great. And like, I wanted to settle in and enjoy being a new couple because he, of course they had a long distance relationship because he was at Harvard for a couple years. That's right. Finishing law school. She was struggling yeah. it out at the firm. Yeah. And well, guess what? He walks and he's like, Hey babe, I have a great plan. You know, my mother's found me a place in Indonesia and I'm just going to go there and finish my book. <laughs> pardon? Yeah. Pardon. And I think if I remember correctly, uh, that he had sold the book and then not gotten it done because he was so busy. Right. And instead of being embarrassed to show his face in the publishing industry, somebody else bought it. Yeah. Somebody else bought it. They were just like, oh, uh, fine. Just, just come over here and spread your brilliance over here. So he was like basically taking a second crack. Right. At writing his first book. Correct. And was like, I guess I'll just go to Indonesia. It's fine. But then he finishes it and it's great. It's like dreams from my father. So. Yeah. So, so. no slouch. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So like all of that, I, as you say, to go back to you and saying the honesty, I mean, she is saying like, this is a once in a generation kind of mind, but here is the reality of living with that. I, I really, I loved it because it takes the Camelot out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like it takes the idea that they were made for each other, that they've never had an argument or a difference or a whatever, that they just ascended together yes. on the top of a cake. Yes. And it's like, no, it was boring and hard at the same time. Oh my God, I love you for this point because, you know, you raised Camelot and my immediate thought was, you know, the film that came out two years ago, Jackie, starring Natalie Portman. Mm -hmm. And that film, 100%, is about Jackie Onassis creating the mythology of JFK Jr., right? right. Or JFK. And um, and so this is not the opposite of that. She, again, still respects her husband as a human being and presents a portrait of him as a brilliant human being, but she is not here to create a mythology. This is not, this is not Jackie giving um, an interview to life magazine that created and spawned this whole Camelot and this time of, of elegance. And what's great about it is it's twofold, right? First, she has the Liberty to do this because there will be other people who will create the mythology of Barack Obama, right? She, can do this because there, yeah, there are going to be, there will be libraries, there will be uh, movies and films and many, many things written that will immortalize his his specialness, mm-hmm. his extraness. And so she has the 
unique task. She's the only person who can immortalize his humanity. Yes. And it's glorious. And by, by immortalizing his humanity, he can't be perfect. He has to be that guy who's like, oh, yeah, my uh, newlywed wife, the love of my life, I just kind of like pieced out on her to write my book. There was this one throwaway line that I read about seven or eight times because it is not only so honest about her mm-hmm. and about him, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, they always said, oh, they, they were living in Chicago and living a life and whatnot. And you read this and you realize, oh, that's true. They weren't living above the town. They weren't sort of the wealthy people beyond everybody. She talks about how as, you know, they progressed when he was, when they were really kind of hustling it out, she had a young baby and they were both working. And she said, I began to realize that when Barack said, uh, I'm on my way home right now, Uh he meant... Almost home is the phrase. I'm almost home. Yeah. Uh, He meant, I'm almost home, but she came to realize it meant but I might talk to somebody in the parking lot for 45 minutes. Or go to the gym. That's right. Uh, or I, yeah, or I'm almost home, but I should probably just make this call first yeah. or whatever it was. Look, I relate to that on so many levels because I have been the person who waits and the person who is waited on. Mm-hmm. I find it like that kind of thing and time and expectations and lateness is one of my most foible foibles that I struggle with both giving and receiving. And I understood so much about her and them yeah. in just that moment. I loved it. I really also, from that section of the book, when, you know, as you said, they're living very normally, you know, even though we know them to be the former POTUS and FLOTUS, there was a certain time in their 30s, they weren't young, when they were living in an apartment, like, you know, worrying about the car or whatnot. And she mentions time and again, how much debt they were carrying. Mm-hmm. Like she is not sparing us. And so that's why from your perspective, this autobiography, it's not a memoir. She's talking about money. She's talking about real life concerns. Like I still had student debt to pay off. I had just taken a pay cut to leave private law and go into social services. It pays significantly less, but I still had like American like student debt, all of you listening in America, like especially grad school students. We debt. feel you. Yeah. Um, and they were like, and she was like, oh, that first book deal that he was late on, like he had to give back the forty thousand dollar advance. Yeah. So she's naming that money, right? She's like, listen, we had 18 degrees between us <laughs> and we had month bills to pay. And yeah, and it was, everything was, she's very clear that everything was taking away from something else, right? She talks about how, um, you know, when, when the children were really young after they had fertility struggles, by the way, and she actually goes into, I have to shout out Sasha because she goes so far as to talk about how when you are struggling with fertility, um, one of the things that's terrible, and I always think of a phrase that Sasha used on our site, which is weird scheduled sex. Yeah. And Michelle Obama's expression is not weird scheduled sex, but it's not far off. No. It's pretty straightforward about what it is you have to get yep. done. She talks about that and how they don't always want to. It's very, very real. I love it because it's so, listen, there's a certain class of person that the Obamas have become now 
And there's a certain class of etiquette where, you know, you know, it's not polite to talk about money. And it's not polite to have certain conversations at certain times. And here's a woman who was the first lady talking about money. Like there's one section where she was like, um, my uh, student loan every month was $600. My car payment, the Saab, was $500. Or maybe it was $600 and $500 reverse, right? I paid this amount in this. I had a membership in like a wine club oh, right, thing, yeah. right? Um, she's listing out like basically her weekly budget. If there were apps at that time, she would have had an app and she would probably be able to read it off to us. And not a lot of people in polite society are willing to do that. More and more, we've been talking about money on this podcast and women's increased comfort in discussing money. But for me, this is my crusade lately over the last year is to fucking fuck the no money talk bullshit. Because you know who that helps? The rich people. Yes. It, it, yes, exactly. That if you don't know, you can't ask. That's right. The other thing that I love about that is that she talks about, like, here's what's brilliant is that those aren't just random details. They're also talking about the life she had to live. So yeah, she talks about when she became a lawyer in Chicago, she got a sob, she got uh, the wine of the month club. Right. Um, and I can't remember any other discretionary expenses, but you know, she went out with friends from time to time, yeah. whatever. Then she talks a lot about how Obama rented a shitty apartment yeah. and had like a shitty yellow car with no floor in it. Mm -hmm. And all he spent money on was books, right? Yeah. So we're furthering the myth of the like wonder Impoverished who, student yes, who, yes. who like grows from the ground. Yes. And turns in. But here's the other thing I loved about it. To me, that is about women. One other thing that happens in, certainly in heterosexual households often, is that there is so much more discretionary income going towards keeping yourself up as a woman yeah. to all the things that indicate to people around you that you deserve to be where you are, that Michelle yes. Obama deserves mm -hmm. to be in this law firm. Right. And he gets to shuffle in in a, like, I'm picturing, like, a wrinkled linen shirt yep. and, like, scuffed loafers. Half an hour late. Yep. And people are like, you're a genius. Yes. If a woman did that, it's a non-starter. No. So one of the other reasons I love that she lists all that is because she's also pointing out what does it cost to even get in the door mm -hmm. as a woman. And, of course, I know that goes double or tenfold. Yes. as a black, black woman, woman. Yes. Um, you know, to be able to be in the circles that they were operating in. But just, she's pointing out all the time yeah. the ways in which it is not always fair, even with her own husband. You're right. I love that point. Like, he's driving around in his fucking car with a hole in the ground. Yeah. Or the floor. And in a ramshackle apartment. And yet, basically everywhere he goes, people are falling on their feet. It's charming. It's yes. wonderful. Oh, he sleeps on a bed of books. Oh, he's so charming. <laughs> We're not here to dump on Barack, but at the same time, like this is, this is what she's done with this book is she's like, listen, this is the reality. And I, he can take it. Let's be honest. He's fine. But to that point, um, we're talking about money and what it means for women and particularly black women. But she, remember, she leaves her firm and she goes to work in, you know, social work and, you know, nonprofits. And she ended up being offered later a job with Public Allies, 
which is this recruitment nonprofit that aims to get like high achieving students to think about not just the corporate world as their postgraduate careers, but working in social services, working for community services. It's funneling talented people to where they're needed as opposed to where they're just most populous. That's right. Because if you think about it, in universities, you know, the top firms and the top corporate recruiters, they'll go and they'll be like, you need to come work for us and here's what your benefits are going to be. And of course, the um, community services and the social services and the charities, they don't have the resources to be able to do that. So Public Allies was this thing where they were creating opportunities to place these really skilled, really brilliant students in places that could help them achieve and grow um, any like social and charitable and philanthropic inclination that they have, just like she did. But the thing with charities, as we know, is that they run on limited budgets and the salaries aren't great. So if you have somebody who's 27 graduating from Harvard, they're wanting either to pay off student debt or they're looking for a salary that's commensurate with their ability. And so she goes in and she's like, I knew that they couldn't afford me, but I also had bills to pay. And I looked around though at how charitable organizations and nonprofits worked and essentially she was saying, and I saw a lot of white people who didn't have to ask for big salaries because they came from good homes and they came from families that paid off their student debts or they didn't accrue that much student debt. And so she was like, and that's another reason why people who are from my community aren't in this work. That's because they don't have the opportunity. And that's this right. is a Hollywood thing this is a, a sports writer thing that the people who are even in the position to take the unpaid internship that a million kids would kill to have yeah. are already the ones who are well off enough that they can support themselves in those situations mm -hmm. or the bank of mom and dad yeah. can pay the rent while you shuffle around New York or whatnot. That's right. You know, hustling for charities and for community services. So she says but I needed to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. So I went in there and I negotiated a higher salary and they had to get more funding. And my God, that was so liberating because I've worked for nonprofits. And there are two things here. Number one, the public has a certain thing with charities where like they look at, um, you know, they'll look at the, the uh, like performance report, the annual report for a charity and they'll be like, what? How much spending was not dedicated to, you know, helping the, 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 the victims? Like or the, the money didn't go on the That's ground. right. And what they're not thinking is administrative means that talent is recruited and also kept at organizations so that they can be healthy. Yeah, I, I found that to be really eye-opening. And I haven't loved it in nonprofits. What I have done is I've talked a lot on this podcast about Ask a Manager, which is a website I absolutely adore about work and work life. And she specializes or certainly talks a lot about people who work in nonprofits and the particular quirks and the particular sort of foibles that are endemic to that kind of job. And, and yeah, that that kind of thing, that anything beyond, you know, one notebook per person is seen as profligate spending. Yeah. Someone like Michelle Obama pointing this out in her autobiography slash memoir is so huge for social services because even she was like, yeah, I needed more money. 
if you want my talent, if you want my brain to help you take this organization forward, you got to compensate me. Which is amazing. And then at the same time, even as she's talking about this, even as she's doing what is absolutely important work, and I think you can really see clearly that it's important work. And later on, she goes to be an administrator at uh, a hospital network, uh, and it's also really important. But she's still at the same time worrying about whether or not her children are, you know, whether people think she's being a good mom, Mm -hmm. whether her husband is around enough. You know, there's an anecdote, again, with the honesty, there's an anecdote that I'm really surprised she included about Malia Obama and her doctor was a little worried about her weight. Yeah. As a, as a, I think a five or six year old child. Yeah. Um, that maybe she was becoming too heavy. And so she tells us, and later on, that will be sort of the impetus for the let's move movement. Yeah. But first, she talks about how, you know, why she was arguably a little overweight. And I feel strange talking about a child's weight, but it's in the book. You know why? Because they were eating fast food all the time. Because she had no time. You know why they were eating fast food all the fucking time? Because, yeah, she, like... Because he was, let's be clear, he was in Springfield. Yep. And he was away and only came home on Thursday nights, sometimes after he hit the gym. Yeah, and after the kids were in bed often. Yeah. And she was getting it done. You reminded me, I'm so glad that we are here, because you reminded me of one of my other favorite parts. In a cutesier book this part would be like a little subheading. But there is a point where in this part of her life when she's essentially a day-to-day single parent with two kids and the husband who's away Monday to Thursday night, she does, there's an ode to a strip mall. There's this one strip mall. Guys, you're not going to get this in a Hillary Clinton book. No. She writes about how there was this one strip mall and she could peel in on her lunch break and get done four errands and have, I think it was, was it Arby's or California like Pizza Chipotle Kitchen? Chipotle or Chipotle. something? She right? do her four errands and have Chipotle in the car, which was also in the mini mall, and how this mini mall became her, like, her zenith, her, her glory place because she could get so much done. And that is what you don't get in, you know, in, in memoirs about fucking Andover and... And I don't know, your, your junior year abroad from Vassar. But it was so visceral. Like, I've never been a mother, but I have been harried. Like, I have rushed from here to there. And that visceral moment of her describing herself sitting in the car and she's eating her Chipotle or whatever thing that she bought at the strip mall, and she savored it. It was like her moment to be like, I've got the gloves for the kids. I've got the supplies I needed. Now I've got my sandwich and I'm just sitting behind the the steering wheel and I have about 10 minutes and I'm breathing. And I was like breathing with her in that part of the book. It was so tangible. And look, this, we have all, as you say, not everybody is a parent or has this kind of a job or is, you know, hustling with two kids and, and spouse away. But everybody has felt that thing where you're like, oh, these Like, I guess I just have nine minutes right now. Yeah. And these are stolen moments where I'm just going to do nothing Mm -hmm. or be by myself. And they're not romantic. Like to, we were talking earlier about the romance of a writer. You're not staring from your office out onto your orchard in those times. Yeah. You are like sitting somewhere vaguely aware that your ankle itches and just so happy that you're not talking to anybody. 
Well, here's the intersection between Michelle Obama and Hollywood, because I recently listened to the Keep It podcast, Ira Madison's podcast, and his guest was um, the woman who plays Janet on The Good Place. Oh, Darcy Carden. And so Darcy Carden, I haven't watched the episode yet. I'm sorry, everybody. But she does the episode that everyone's talking about where she plays every character on the show. Right. It's called Janet's. And so Janet's, um, Darcy, I mean, you can imagine how exhausting it was. Right. To play so many roles. Is she's, for the uninitiated or the non-good place people, she is playing uh, her own character and at least seven other permutations of the other characters. And sometimes she's playing one character pretending to be another character all in her body. It is, right. it, like, it's nuts, obviously, but it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So she was talking about that shooting week and how at the end of every day, because during the day she, did, she didn't eat, and at the end of the day she sat in her car with the craft services sandwich that had been put away for her in her trailer, and she ate the sandwich sitting in her parked car on the lot before driving home. And that was like the breather moment of her day after she had played all these roles. And there's the intersection. Michelle Obama was playing, or, you know, in that moment in her life, was playing the part of professional, wife, parent, uh, like... Daughter. Daughter. Always daughter, trying to be a friend. That's right. A sister. Like, God, yeah, we haven't even gotten to the part where she talks about how her female friendships are a priority in her life. And she's like, if we put as much work into our female friendships as we did into work, we'd be in good shape. And fuck, it's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, this is, listen, for me, my, the first half of the book, just before they start campaigning in 2008 for, well, no, like just before, like in 2007 for in the primaries is probably the, the most like the takeaways that I really, really will remember forever. And I love that they are still so with her, that even everything that's happened afterward, um, you know, is not a bigger memory for her than one of those shopping trips where she had to find hats and scarves for Sasha and Malia because otherwise people were going to think she wasn't a good mother. Yeah. And it was March, so nothing was on the shelves. And then Sasha, like, there's a good thread of Sasha. Yeah. Um, Sasha didn't want to keep it on. I'm hot. Yeah. And you're just, you're there with her. And yeah, how could anything else when you have a million servants and a million opportunities be as real? I think that's the gift of the book. She knows that their life in the White House is not real, right? Yeah. It's not reality and it's that's not... Right. It's not a thing. So she doesn't spend a whole lot of time telling you about the fairy tale. She tells you about the dirt behind it mm -hmm. that got you there in the first place. Well, it must be more than 100 pages, actually. I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's we're well through half of the book before they ever get to those primaries that you're talking it's about. It's about exactly half. Mm -hmm. It's about exactly half. And I'll tell you when, it's not like I started losing interest, but... I stopped taking notes. How about that? I stopped taking notes. And here's where I, when I stopped taking notes, the, the part where I, um, the last note I took was during the primaries, they were separate. Right? I know exactly what you're going to say. Okay. I know. 
And she has this one quick little paragraph that's full of hacks. So here's Michelle Obama giving us hacks. Here's what I learned on these trips when I was still working, but I would make day trips to Iowa because the Iowa primary was so popular or important and I needed to speak to families and whatnot. I learned that actually fast food is better to eat because you get less risk of getting food poisoning Mm. from fast food Mm. than you would if you stopped by either a random diner or ate a lovely thing that somebody makes for you. But the fast food is is like safer so that you don't get sick for a week and can't go out, right? right? She talked about the clothes that were safer to wear that wouldn't be stained. She talked about like what foods to avoid when like she, she was like, these foods crumble, but they don't stain. So I ate more of those. The small little hacks, like, you know, you talk about being on a campaign and during primaries and going on the bus and the stories that you hear from other people are, I don't know, like bigger stories. She's giving you the small hacks. Like, this is what I had to think about. I'd rather have a Big Mac than a homemade sandwich at the side of the road because I needed to not be sick. I mean, it's it's brilliant. And this is maybe, yeah, my biggest thing is those are the things that have stayed with her. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually what I thought you were going to say. Um, the last juiciest moment for me is maybe not in the primaries. It's maybe in... Uh, when the campaign is, uh, maybe it was, but she was campaigning for him, as you point out. And somewhere along the way, she is told, like kind of offhand, third hand, through a person who's a person who's a person, that maybe she's not coming off so well in the media. Mm -hmm. And she is mad. Uh Because she feels like, well, why didn't anybody tell me this 25 speeches ago? Yeah. Why, if I'm important and I'm causing problems to the campaign and the product, who I'm also sleeping with, like, you know, that's when it gets weird, right? That there's Barack Obama the human and then Barack Obama the product. Why didn't anybody tell me? Why didn't anybody pull me aside and tell me that I should do this or that? And she talks about how she learned ad hoc a bunch of things because she was training herself Um, what I was most interested in is not that she eventually gets some media training and and learns to spin herself into a a palatable version of herself. Not that I think she was unpalatable or that she thinks that, but she learned to sort of get her message across more clearly. But what I really loved, because it's the last moment of reality, is sometimes people won't tell you. Sometimes there are things that are roadblocks that are happening And it's kind of on you to ask, to learn, to want to fix it and get better. And that's unfucking fair Mm -hmm. And it's not something that happens. Again, this is not a thing that happens to men as much and especially not to white men because you know how they'll be like, bro, bro, do a thing later, whatever. But people don't do that and they they would be more likely to let her be less than she could be, to not let her try. And that she was kind of writing that path herself the same way she was writing. Here's what I learned. Eat a Big Mac. Again, Hillary Clinton is not going to tell you, eat a Big Mac. Yeah. Love it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's the thing. We haven't discussed anything after he actually wins the election. But you almost don't need to. I, listen... We here on Show Your Work, I mean, we talk about how this was a workbook, and we're talking about best practices. Yeah. And her best practices were in place before she got there. Which, of course, makes the title so perfect, Mm -hmm. right? The title is Becoming. Yeah. The title is not Being. Yeah. It's not about first lady-ing. It's about everything that happened before I got there. Yeah. So if this is less satisfying for you listening, I don't even want to apologize because I think that is what we do on our show. It's the roots of good work. And this is not the book maybe that you thought you wanted. Mm -hmm. It is not about state dinners and balls, but it is the book that you actually need. It is the book that tells you how she got there. Yeah. And then pulls a little of the mystery away when she's like, when it finally came time for the amazing post-inaugural ball with all our friends, I was so tired and sad I skipped it. <laughs> like, that's, that's what you need to know. Mm-hmm. And that is, as you say, demystifying, mm-hmm. but also grounding in a way that is probably the, the most important. That's not to say that the want's not there. Yes, you get the details. Like, she will give you the little nuggets. Like, what happens when you get to the White House? Who issues your keys? And, like... All that is there and you're going to love it. About, like, I was obsessed with the kid shit. So the rules that she gives the girls about what they can and can't do in the pantry. Sure. Love. All that is there. Those are juicy nuggets. But in terms of our recurring theme of the website of Laney Gossip that has been instituted by Duanna all those years ago, want versus need, this is the need. You need the first half of the book. The want You can have it in the second. So I have to say, though, there's one more thing about this. I don't usually get to tell you things that you don't know, but I wonder if you don't know. Did you know that there is something called the Michelle Obama Museacology? What? The Michelle Obama Museacology, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, is an American music collection curated by Questlove which serves as a soundtrack to Michelle Obama's 2018 book, Becoming. <laughs> endorsed? Yeah, I, it's uh, endorsed, good question. It says the collection has 300 tracks and includes music by Michael Jackson, Prince, Kendrick Lamar, Beyonce, Erica Badu, Aretha Franklin, and other. Uh, and it's divided into three parts that span her life. Jesus, okay. Holiday playlist. I mean, obviously, like, yeah, now you need to go and download this immediately. I have to assume this is, if not overtly endorsed, yes, this is actually, it's about her tour. For each tour stop, uh, Questlove has created this playlist. And so it's worked up into the 300. I guess what I'm understanding here is maybe not each tour is going to have all of those songs played, but 
It is all here. We will put up the link on the website so that you can see what he believes to be the Michelle Obama playlist that obviously she agrees with. Oh, God. Like, I mean, we're not going to do this, but we could actually have another Show Your Work episode on the work that she has put into this tour. Well, the money that we just spent (laughs) seeing her on tour. (laughs) Look, I did the math and I am like, okay, what can I like, what can I give up for the hundred days between here and there for, you know, some dollars a day to, to make it happen. But I'm very happy about it. And to hear this playlist, Michelle Obama's music quality. And thanks Questlove for getting to let me be the one to tell you something. Okay, so as promised, because this is the last episode of the year, we wanted to read some of your emails. Um, And I'm going to start with an email from Maria. Sure. Maria wrote to us about the intimacy coordinator episode that we talked about. It was probably about a month ago. If you missed it, this is uh, where there are shows and movies in Hollywood in increasing numbers, which now have special coordinators for sex scenes to make sure that Everybody from the performers to the directors and uh, the technical crew are comfortable and don't feel awkward about the job they have to do. That's right. Um, and in particular, there uh, we profiled, well, we talked about the Rolling Stone profile of the like leading intimacy coordinator in the business. So this email from Maria is about that episode. So here's Maria. I think you're written aside didn't have a chance to listen to the podcast, that an intimacy coordinator job is, quote, sexy as fuck, boosts negative stereotypes, whether the comment was made half-heartedly or not. Saying that implies that the coordinators do not work hard, they are not true professionals, that they just stand around watching others having sex, being aroused. It's the same as a bloke saying that masseuses or gynecologists have the best jobs in the world, fondling women or looking up genitalia all day long. There's nothing sexual about those jobs either. It's dangerous to assume that there's something sexual about the actor's jobs either. They are paid to act out their contractual scenes. The problem of attaching sexual feelings to someone who is only obliged to do their job well is one of the reasons why the intimacy coordinators are so desperately needed in the first place. I think hiring intimacy coordinators will be a huge boost to workplace safety for actors and their job should be valued 100% for the work. Maria, thank you for the email. Um, I speak for myself when I say I wish you would have listened to the podcast, the episode before writing this, because that's actually what we did, which I believe that we did in the episode. We talked about the value of the intimacy coordinator. We talked about the background uh, that goes into becoming an intimacy coordinator. We talked about the skill set that's required. We talked about the job. Um, that the intimacy coordinator is a liaison, the communication skills that are required to be uh, an intimacy coordinator, um, the the props that they have on hand in order to be able to help their clients. And we talk about how they are intimately involved in the storytelling. So these points are great that you're making, and we 100% agree with them, which is why we consider, or I considered, Um, the job of intimacy coordinator, sexy as fuck, because we think work is sexy. Absolutely. And because, as I think we talked about in that episode, finding a hole, no pun intended, but we got to walk through it, uh, that needs to be filled, finding something that 
is not yet being done that would make something better is the pinnacle of what incredibly successful people do. And yeah, I do think that's sexy to find that thing and turn it into work. So I, uh, I'll speak for me and endorse the, the term. I think if we go a little bit deeper too into what is and isn't sexy, that was the barrier in a lot of things, not just related to what happens on sets, but also in what happens in real life. There are some opponents of Me Too and a discussion around consent that argue that talking about consent is not sexy. Go look it up. Google it. When in fact, talking about sex and consent can lead to great sex. So it is sexy. And so what we are doing here or what we hoped to do in the discussion about intimacy coordination is to sort of break down these stereotypes about what makes things unsexy. And by calling it sexy, we are advocating for consent, for protection, and making it cool, trendy. Absolutely. And uh, by talking about things that are sexy uh, in relation to work, in relation to people who are uh, strong and amazing and creative and all those things, it's less of a taboo and it's not a bad word when we get to link it to those things. And it's not just about sexy times, as the people on the internet say. Um, You know, you can be excited about those things. Thanks, Maria, for your email. So I have an email here uh, from someone who was listening to an episode we did a few weeks ago, talking about an episode we did a few weeks ago where we talk about female pleasure on screen and Rachel Bloom talking about how basically the clitoris isn't seen on television. Uh, Later in the same episode, I made a reference to Rain, Mm -hmm. the CW show about, uh, you know, hot teenage royalty in the Middle Ages. And this is what Samantha wrote. Long story short, way back in the original airing of the first episode of Rain, there's a scene where a female character is actually shown on screen getting herself off. She's interrupted by an older male character who offers to assist she writes in brackets, kind of grossly older, but still seemed pretty bold for the CW. What I found especially interesting is that in later broadcasts of the show and the Netflix version, the scene was cut so it's just the later part between the male and female character largely taking away the female pleasure-based agency in the beginning of the scene. I thought it was an unexpected crossover given that you mentioned both separately, and this is where Sam's email just really gets the A+. Here are a couple more links to the details of the story if you're interested. We are, and Sam has provided not one but three sources, like she has showed her work, um, and they they explore more about why, yeah, why a masturbation scene from a CW show was cut out. So first of all, Sam, good ears. Like, I'm very impressed that you made that link. And second, I did not know that this had happened. I don't know if I'm surprised. But I love that it's still here and that, you know, these articles are from 2013. The internet is forever and you cannot make a move without somebody being like, oh yeah, there was a thing here. So in what world will those, will that edit be able to come back? I think as always, I think the same way that I felt when we talked about it a few weeks ago, that 
The CW is a weird hybrid. It's sort of a network network, which is to say it's not ABC, CBS, NBC. It's not the big three, but it has the same rules on it. We're now, that was almost six years ago now, we're now in, you know, an era where YouTube has shows where there are, uh, you know, Instagram originals coming. There are shows all over the place. Snapchat is doing original content. I think that all of those places that don't have the same kind of rules and advertisers as a old school network is going to be freer to try stuff and to bring it back to the forefront. It is interesting that the edit's not there on Netflix, but it might be that it aired that way one time and then somebody made them change the master. I don't Mm know. Um, Clearly, there's a scandal afoot. But yeah, my thing is everybody's making much more ad hoc, small level content now. And I think we will find that the the heavy hand of the networks is going to ebb away slowly, kicking and screaming. Okay, ready for another email? Here we go. This is from Aaron. Aaron is responding to our Oscar host podcast. Mm-hmm. So Aaron says, just listen to the podcast and I have to disagree with you about eliminating various categories at the Oscars. We said that they shouldn't cut yeah. them. That, that, you know, it's the celebration of all those things. Right. They get there one day in the sun. Okay. So Aaron goes on to say, people in the entertainment business most likely care about all the technical categories. No one else does. The technical categories are why the Oscars are the Cambridges and why the Golden Globes are the Sussexes. <laughs> I like seeing all the stars that I actually care about up for awards. Multiple movie categories and multiple TV categories. It's awesome. I honestly don't care about most of the other Oscar categories. That's why I record it just to watch the acting awards, directing, best picture, and to see any of the water cooler worthy moments. The rest, meh. It was pretty surprising to me how quickly you both agreed that the technical categories are crucial. It's a big nope from me and pretty much everyone I know. Do you two two really think the plebeians care about sound editing digital short that no one has seen or will see or whatever? Love the show. (laughs) <laughs> Amazing. Um, I mean, first of all, I think that by virtue of the construction of the email, that means that Erin is referring to herself as a plebeian, which, Erin, you don't have to do that. You're important. You're not a plebeian. Um, do I think people care about that? Not necessarily, but I do think this is the way that everything is going. Um, you see how the sausage gets made. We were talking earlier about The Good Place, which you are in the middle of, and I was relating something I learned in an interview with Michael Schur, the showrunner, and he tells a small anecdote about Ted Danson, and then I thought, oh, but 10 years ago, it would have been an interview with Ted Danson referring to Michael Schur in passing, but we're now in an era where I do think people are more and more interested in the work behind the work, and as we've been talking about this season, people are more and more realizing that the entertainment industry is accessible. You can make entirely broadcastable films on your phone. And part of that is knowing how to do that and how people make digital shorts. So I don't know if everybody cares, but I think more and more people are beginning to. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, 15 years ago, Shonda Rhimes wasn't a household name Mm -hmm. or a Shonda Rhimes wouldn't be a household name. And she is now. So I think part of our jobs and the jobs of new media in general, which is the internet, websites like Vulture and what The Hollywood Reporter is doing, 
is profiling and making the Shonda Rhimes of the world stars. And so perhaps you don't care about it now, but in 15 years, maybe the technical categories, the people who are nominated in the technical, the people who are nominated in the technical categories will be bigger stars that in 15 years people will care more about. Like I think about um, who someone I'm very excited to see this year, Ruth Carter, who is the costume designer for Black Panther. I hope that she's going to be nominated. Um, and that is beautiful work, but she's also like a really super interesting person. Um, and I think that you don't know that she is because in the past we haven't given ink space to it, but that's what we're starting to do now. And that allows for things like Lena Waithe, who is a person that we love and a performer and a creator that we love, started as a behind-the-scenes writer and occasional performer on uh, Aziz Ansari's Master of None and then became, uh, you know, came sort of out from the background to be in front of things. I think, uh, you know, Colin Jost was the head writer on Saturday Night Live before he was Colin Jost, who needs no description. Yeah. Uh, but Aaron's email, not Aaron, Aaron. Oh, but Aaron's email gave me the greatest idea. So there's like a seismic shift happening in Hollywood, right? Like to her point, people watch largely for the stars, but things are shifting. Yeah. I would love, and let's pinpoint this for later. I would love to do an episode about which celebrities are doing the best at embracing that, mm -hmm. about seeing how the new world is and yeah. being comrades in arms. The obvious example being, you know, the people like Reese Witherspoon or other producers who are working with other creatives behind the scenes and who are not doing as well and maybe suffering as a result. Yeah. And, you know, to Aaron's point about, do you two really think the plebeians care about sound editing digital short that no one has seen or will see? I specifically go to digital short because there is one film, it's an animated short that came out this year that was a huge achievement, and that was Bao by Domi Shi. Which uh, we should point out, people did see uh, more, Before. Because, more than they might have seen any other because it rolled as the pre-roll at the beginning of The Incredibles 2. That's right. And so... Ask me how I know. <laughs> Domi Shi um, is... Domi Shi is the first woman, and she's Asian to head up a Pixar film. And the exciting part about that is she's now working on a feature-length film. So recognition in the categories that the plebes don't care about, like digital short and like animated short, are the stepping stone to become the next um, whatever, Martin Scorsese, and to become the next, um, I don't know, Christopher Nolan's. And if you start caring about them now, they have more chance of getting those opportunities. And if you need one more little nudge, Domi Shi is A, 29 years old and helming her feature at Pixar. And she's from Toronto, born in China and raised in Toronto. So she's a hometown girl and a child and absolutely killing it. So yeah, these are where your future favorites come from. Okay, next. Next. So uh, now we have an email from Noha, and it's in reference to our Work of Writing special podcast episode, which we ran a few weeks ago. 
we have another one coming your way, so we're glad that you like them. Uh, but she writes about something that I really love, and I think this is really up your alley. So okay. she says, towards the end of the episode, you spoke about how writing factors into so much work, even if it's not in typically creative disciplines. And I totally related to this because my industry is IT, so not exactly considered a creative area. I've recently taken on a lot more responsibility, go you, badass, and I'm working my way into management. And one thing I've noticed the managers around us doing is using more vague language and saying things in what seems like code. I think this is a management level skill to keep from over-promising certain things while still sounding professional. It's hilarious because I'm always CC'd now on all sorts of emails from executives where they're finding polite ways to negotiate haggle, point fingers, lay blame, and squirrel out of deadlines or agreements. <laughs> I've taken to calling it professional shade, and I think it's an enormously important skill for anyone moving up in management. So while I think I'm a decent creative and technical writer, I've yet to develop my, pers- my professional shade muscle as I work my way into more managerial positions. I'm working on it, studying the writing of my managers and directors, and trying to understand how to work and rework certain communication I was recently contacted by my boss's boss's boss to help with a particularly contentious slide on a deck to be given to senior management. And while I was overwhelmed, I was also thrilled to get to participate in crafting something for such senior audience. I love that. Basically, writing can help you subtly shade colleagues. While (laughs) keeping your own nose clean. Yes. So I have to say, I completely understand what Noha's talking about, and I'm not great at it either. Mm-hmm. I am always advocating for plain language, but it has taken me too long to go, yeah, sometimes you can't just say, no, you were the one who was supposed to turn it in and didn't. Yep. What you have to say in that situation, which is so hard for me, is I'm really looking forward to getting it. Let me know if there's anything else that you need from me before the 5 p.m. deadline. Ugh. It's hard for me. Yeah. You are better at it than I am by a long shot. It's not only those things. It's it's not even shade. It's redirects and massaging egos. How many of us have been in situations where your boss or your superior comes up with a fucking cockamamie idea or your colleague and you clearly can't gently shut it down or you have to gently shut it down, but you have to do it creatively um, in a way that obviously doesn't call them a fucking idiot and also makes them feel empowered and protects yourself. Like that happens every single day. Every day. Um, Can I tell you one hack that I've worked out uh, for responding to emails like this or whatnot? I I don't always speak aloud when I'm writing an email, but when I have something like this to do, not only do I write it aloud, I smile while I'm doing it. I write the email while I'm smiling and you realize because there are words that come out of your mouth they sound terrible if when you're smiling. You realize they can't, you can't do it. You can't say, as you know, while smiling. It's yeah. not going to do it. You start with, not a problem. Let me see if there's anything right. I can do to help you uh, while you're trying to maintain your face. Do that in the mirror, or I've done it on FaceTime to myself. Yeah. Just to lower the fucking fire guns that I would like <laughs> to be blazing at all times. That's a great email, Noha. Thank you so much. Yes, writing can help improve uh, all kinds of politics and protection at work. And something I think everybody can and should be constantly working on. Definitely. 
Okay. And finally, um, we love all your emails, but there are some that I think have more like participation factor than others. When we talked about the, as of this podcast, still unannounced host of the Oscars. (laughs) Am I wrong? Did they do something? No, there's nobody. There's nobody. Um, We were talking about who we thought might fit in instead. And you guys sent some options that I really enjoyed. I got one here that voted for Taylor Swift. Never happening. Uh, Well, uh, this is from Lexi. And Lexi says, self-assured, not an audition, can sing all the songs, is kind of nerdy, and has a great ability to act surprised and to guffaw. (laughs) Like, she's (laughs) making her case here. (laughs) But if you don't buy it, she also suggests Dolly Parton. Oh, yeah. Somebody else suggested Sarah Bareilles and Josh Groban to host together. Okay. So that was interesting. Uh, another email, which I'm so sorry to this awesome suggestion. Uh, your email has escaped me. Um, but somebody suggested, like, go for broke, have Barack and Michelle host. <laughs> which, I mean, they would be uniformly welcomed. We know that. Right. I mean... Are we supposed to be commenting and grading these suggestions or not? Well, I mean, I think they are mostly in… Uh, in Jest? Yeah, a, a jest and a fantasy world, right? I found it. Um, this is from Nicole. And Nicole says, for your consideration, Barack and Michelle, uh, and says that they're qualified because confident public speakers, comfortable with live television broadcasts, affable and personal personable. This is amazing. And she goes on, Hollywood would show up for this. George, Julia, Meryl on her feet in the front row. Nicole clapping awkwardly. So she's, she's pulling hard for this. Um, I'm amused by these suggestions, but do I think they're actually viable? Not, not so much. No, not the the Obamas. No. And I also don't think Josh and Sarah Bareilles are viable either. Um, I think that there is a earnestness that comes and is accepted and celebrated with hosting the Tonys. I don't think that is where the Oscars and the Oscar Academy wants to go. Here's the thing, though. So I've, once again, my email is back online, so I found the email. This email was from Abigail, who makes several points about them doing a great job at the Tonys and their practice live entertainers. But then here's her final point. Her rationale is... It's like picking James Corden, but less expected and more interesting. (laughs) It's probably going to be James Corden, right? I mean, I still am pushing for Busy Phillips. I think if there are people who are smart, like, God, who's in the auditorium more than she is? She knows what goes on there. She knows her way to the bar. Busy Phillips would be amazing. Um, And yeah, I mean, if they would consider James Corden, who's CBS, then they should be able to consider... Busy Phillips, who's NBC slash E. So, yeah, love it. But listen, they're, I think we're at the point now where those guys have turned it down. Like, uh, yeah, you know, it's so late in the game. It's almost Christmas. I'm expecting an invitation at this point. I, I think you should. <laughs> I think you should. I have a, a clever dentist who might be alive. <laughs> Thank you all so much for your emails. We look forward to reading more of them in 2019. Oh, my God, 2019. It's so helpful and it's so fun to read how things we say wind up in your ears. So thank you. Keep them coming. Keep yelling at us. It's all for the good. And finally, to end the final podcast of 2018, we wanted to bring you guys some nerdy ass joy. So you sent me an Instagram post and I played it and it's a post where it loops like all Instagram videos do. 
but you almost don't know that it's looping because it's so perfect. Yes. We're going to play you a little bit of it right now, and then we're going to come back and tell you what it is that you were hearing. 3, 12, 1 of 3, 17 next, 2, 3, 2, 3, 4, 16, 17, 1 of 3 and 2, 6 next, 2, 3, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, A, B, 2, 2, 3, semi, 10, 1, 2, 18. Okay, so do you know what that was? If you have clever ears, you might. Well, our queen, you should hear our queen's voice in the background. But maybe people have her voice in the background all the time, like she's in their dreams. (laughs) That, of course, was from Beyonce's headlining, even though supposedly it was Coldplay headlining. But can we just… Coldplay was the the Beyonce Super Bowl. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's actually how they build it. The second Beyonce Super Bowl with guest appearances by uh, Bruno Mars and backup band Coldplay. But, of course, you can't hear her that well because you're not listening to a broadcast of the Beyonce halftime show. You are listening to the control room where there are, in this post, I can see 18, 25 cameras off the top of my head. Uh, and what you're seeing, the control room is the ballet of what cameras are doing what and what you're seeing on your screen. And the thing that is amazing is it has to all be done to music exactly. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to cover a live show, like at Oscars, you know where people are going to be or whatever. Or if you, if you cover sports as a, as a camera person, like you go where the ball goes, right? Yeah. And there's a talent to switching those things, switching, meaning making whichever camera shot is best, come up at the right time. But when you're shooting a musical performance that's live like this… With choreography. With choreography, with dancers, with all kinds of moves, you are also hitting on the beat so that you can see that the director, who is, of course, this calm-as-fuck British woman, is like, five, two, three, switch, two, two, three, four, three of three, two, three, four, four of three, two, three, four. She's telling those camera people that they're going to be on that shot for three bars of four counts. I don't know what they do if it's like in six, eight time. Um, But so this director is not only an incredibly skilled and incredibly practiced and whatever. You also have to be, no joke, pretty musical. Well, look, I've talked before on this podcast about how for me, being in a control room and watching a director work is like pornographic. It's wonderful. I fucking love it so much. The control. That's where the power is. In this case, no, the power is with Beyonce and on the field. But imagine who Beyonce trusts to actually be between her and the people at home. That's right. Is incredible. And we know Beyonce's dedication to detail. So all of this would have been, of course, rehearsed like a musical. So in the days and weeks leading up to this, It would have been, she was practicing in the truck. She would have known, you know, if this woman could dance, she could probably perform the choreography just as well as the dancers. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And she knows it in her bones. It is, if you listen to it back, and we'll include the link so you can watch the full glory of the 30, 40 seconds, it is so rhythm perfect because she's not going to get flustered, but also because at this point they have run it into the ground in the best way possible. They know it cold. What I like about 
behind the scenes moments like this, especially at big shows like the Super Bowl, is the Super Bowl show itself, the game, would have had its own control room or rooms. That's right? absolutely right. And then for halftime, not only do they bring in the set, readjust the lights, but they switch control rooms. Well, they would have to. A, because you need somebody else to be on your game, but it's a completely different game, right? Like directing sports, I know, is its own absolutely phenomenal and difficult task. And the whole point of directing sports is that you don't know what's going to happen. This is the polar opposite of that. This is knowing exactly what's going to happen and somehow having enough eyes and enough strength to show it to everyone. Yes. Show all of it to everybody. I have even more questions now. Go. Who is this woman? Let's find out. Where did she, where did she meet up with Beyonce? You know, what is their history of working together? Because as we know, Beyonce has reliable and consistent people that she goes to, right? She has a go-to list. Here's who I'm going to for choreography. Here's who I'm going for for music direction. Here's who I'm going to for costume design. And so for a huge performance like that, and remember, this was the kickoff to the Formation World Tour. That that Super Bowl was... um, eight weeks ahead, about 10 weeks ahead of the drop of lemonade. So she was working on all of that, right? So she knew what was in this performance. You're setting the tone on this performance for the album and then the tour that was to come. What is the history between Beyonce and this director that she had the confidence in to hand over something this important? Uh, I should say that the director of the halftime show as a whole of that halftime show is called Hamish Hamilton. I don't think that uh, the person that we're hearing is Hamish Hamilton. So either they are working together very, very closely in order to make that happen, or there's a real unsung hero happening here uh, who's a part of Hamish's team uh, because it is some ballet. If you really love this, uh, there is also a link to another uh, part of this genre, which up to now was my my gold standard. And that's uh, the control room in the Grease live broadcast from, I believe it was two years ago. Uh, Same deal, more dancers uh, and something like 57 different shots in the first two minutes. Mm -hmm. It is glorious. Play it and love it. Um, This is, you know, directing in a control room we already have established is a great skill. And for these particular directors, they have to also be musical. Absolutely. Which is, ah, it's, it's essential that you know what's happening at all times. But I was also thinking, like, there are lots of musical people, for example, who aren't necessarily, like, you could be, you know, you could be broadcasting, I don't know, a live John Mayer concert or a, uh, you know, the, the symphony, what's that called? The Pops? You know what I'm talking about? The top of the pop. I don't know. Uh, Like, whatever. Like, that kind of thing. You don't need to be a fucking, like, dynamic director with 28 cameras. As discussed, you can be a sports director who Mm -hmm. knows what to do with 28 cameras and how to keep them all moving, but you're not necessarily somebody who's musical and appreciates all the elements of what's going on in the lyrics of formation. Yes. To have somebody who can do both is a bit unicorny and very wonderful, and I'm I want to know more and more about it. Like, yeah, what's the audition process? Do you just have to clap 
like 85 bars and without stuttering. It's amazing. Whoever you are, if you would like to identify yourself to us or not, we just want to send our thanks and appreciation, gratitude, and admiration. This is the best way to end the episode and the year. Thank you for giving us this glorious example of your work. I mean, partly we just wanted to talk about it because we love it, but also it is kind of meditative. It's very exciting. And you cannot watch this and not be in a good mood. Let that be the way we end the year and move into a new year. If 2019 gives us more moments like this, I will be very, very happy. Well, on the cheese factor, some of my best parts of this year have been doing this podcast. Uh, We are always delighted to talk with you guys, to hear what you have to say, that you want to know what we want to talk about work is so exciting. So thank you so much. And we look forward to bringing you more next year. Have a break. We all need a break as we learn from Alexander Hamilton. Take a break. Work hard next year. Happy Christmas. Happy holidays. Follow us on social media. Uh, Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 